Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to yet another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We are your hosts, Andrew and Dan Newman. I am Dan Newman. I am joined, as always, by Andrew Newman. And Andrew, how are you doing on this fine evening? I am doing okay, Dan. Uh, we got our most significant winter storm yesterday here in uh, the Hudson Valley of New York. Really, the first significant storm of the year. But, uh, you know, just when you think, ah, we might get off light. Nope. Big storm yesterday as we're here in mid-March as we're recording this. So the positive, though, was that I didn't go to work and use that time to finish studying for today's podcast episode. And we are recording this on Wednesday, the 15th of March. It's too bad that your snowstorm didn't come uh, tomorrow. So you could uh, watch uh, NCAA basketball yes. all day. Um, that is I, a very good point. I am lucky enough to be on paternity leave at the moment. So I will be spending all day tomorrow, uh, obviously caring for the, the child, but then also uh, watching as much NCAA basketball as I can. And then Friday, I am actually headed North Carolina to uh, attend the NCAA tournament. I've only been there once, only been to the tournament once before. And as um, I may have mentioned on the podcast in the past, uh, it was about five years ago and I was actually at the UMBC Virginia 16 to one upset. So not expecting anything quite so epic this time around, but very much looking forward to another trip to the the NCAA tournament, which is a lot of fun. Highly recommended for anybody who ever has the chance to to do it. Um, we've got kind of a, an interesting topic tonight, but before we get into that, I just want to first of all give my normal announcement to please uh, follow us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can check us out on facebook at hello old sports podcast i checked it out the other day and we have something like over 300 followers which was which is great and uh really appreciated and then uh, obviously rate us review us all that good stuff you can contact the show hello old sports at gmail.com i also wanted to note uh and you, there's only a few days left uh voting closes in early april uh we are nominated under the Best Sports Talk Podcast Award for the Sports Podcast Group. Um, you can vote for us at sportspodcastgroup.com and then click on the awards tab, and that's sportspodcastgroup.com. It is spelled just like it sounds. We're up against uh, some interesting, um, some relatively well-known names. I saw J.J. Reddick's podcast is nominated in our category and a couple of other names that are, are relatively well known so you know as they say it's an honor just to be nominated but we would love it if you all would just take a minute and go ahead and vote for us yeah it was uh kind of a welcome surprise to hear about that because i didn't know we were even you know i didn't know how we would have ended up on uh 
on anybody's radar for that. So thank you to uh, Arnie Chapman, who's the head of the Sports History Network for, you know, spreading the word on some of the podcasts that we have here. I, uh, you're right. You look at some of the people on the list that are sort of famous names and hopefully the criteria that they're using to determine who wins this isn't total downloads or, or annual salary or anything like that. But um, I'm under no illusion we're going to win this, but it is just kind of cool to see our sort of thing there alongside because you would have to assume that means at some level somebody who's deciding these things listened to at least some of our podcast and decided they like what they heard so whether it was a five minute clip or whatever they had to have at least said oh this is they're able to string together complete sentences so let's put them on there the clip that was put on the website um to as sort of a sample of what we do and i i assume this is what Arnie submitted for us, but if you click on our podcast on the website, you can check out, you know, every podcast has like a five minute, um, a five minute uh, sample of that podcast. And ours is an interesting one. It actually goes back to one of our, uh, one of our earlier episodes. And it is when we had my friend Abe on to talk about the, New Jersey Nets of the 90s and early 2000s and we um were talking about the Nets changing their name to the New Jersey Swamp Dragons and sort of analyzing <laughs> how and why that failed. So of all the things to to have as a part of our um you know our application packet if you will I thought that was that was pretty neat cuz it it kind of speaks to some of the more obscure conversations we had and we are nominated among others um the other nominees in our category kenny main colin cowherd uh, i mentioned jj reddick as a uh the lead which is i believe is a podcast from the athletic that talks about the sort of the top stories in sports that that day um and i was a listener to that for a while myself so it's it's a um it's a good uh good category glad to be nominated in it and some of our other fellow podcasts um Sports History Network shows are nominated in some other categories, so so check them out, too. All right, well, on to today's topic, and we are always sort of looking for new and novel things to delve into here on the Sports History Network. And, you know, Andrew will have an idea, or I'll have an idea, and we'll run it by the other, and, you know, we'll, I can't think of one that the, you know, the other person has ever rejected. So, Andrew, this was kind of your idea, and... You're thinking maybe this might be a little bit of sort of the first in a, a periodic series. So why don't you go ahead and tell us both about the concept and about the, who we're going to talk about tonight. Sure. And while we're at it, I have uh, I have another series idea that would be a little off the beaten path, but um, it's kind of the flip side of, of what, what I'm going to mention in a second. And we could call it, well, we could worry about the title later, but something along the lines of done to death. And this is where we talk about ones that have been done to death, but we limit ourselves to either 10 or 15 minutes. So if we want to talk about, you know, stories that have been just, there's been a million things about, you know, the, the Lakers Celtics eight or eighties rivalry, or, you know, the Red Sox curse or whatever, probably a theme that the first two things I came up with were Boston things, but you know what I mean? Where we can go, all right, we're going to do this as a standalone thing and we are going to set a timer. But anyway, Moving I don't along. think we're so, going to set a timer and have be able to stick to it. So, but the idea I came for this and this is going to be called the wilderness years. And where this 
actually uh, the germ of this idea for me was actually when we were at Lambeau Field uh, back in the fall. Me and you and uh, our father went to Green Bay. We saw a Packers game. And the next day we went back and we went to the Hall of Fame and we saw, you know, the Packers Hall of Fame is great. And what I'm about to say is not a slight to them at all, but there's a lot in the early days, sort of where did the Packers name come from and Curly Lambeau and then, you know, the pre-war teams. And then we, you know, cover the Vince Lombardi era. And then there's basically one wall that says the wilderness years and it's 1968 to, you know, 1991 or 1992. And then we're into the Brett Favre era. And my thought was, I understand why they need to do that. I understand why in a franchise that's had a proud history, they have to skip basically 25 years of bad football. But I bet within that 25 years, there's some really interesting stories. The first one, and with the Packers, who I imagine we'll get to eventually, it's a little less interesting because the decline started because Vince Lombardi left. But I was thinking of sort of some of these proud franchises that are just consistently good um, and sort of their dark periods. You know, the Yankees of the late 60s and early 70s comes to mind. Um, the Lakers, I guess, in the early to mid 90s, the Nick Van Exel teams come to mind. We will we will have a few of these and there's not a million you can do, but. That's sort of my idea. And where we landed on to start is the 19, basically the 1980s Pittsburgh Steelers. So this is really going to be the era between the end of the, their four championship. You know, they win the Super Bowl in 74, 75, 78, 79. And then in 1992, Bill Cowher is hired. And what happened in that intermediate time? Um, you know, a short answer is going to be a lot of their guys got old and they retired, Yeah, but that wasn't in one fell swoop. They didn't suddenly go from a great team in 1979 to has-beens in 1980. There's a lot of interesting stories in there. And there's also some stuff that just, I haven't been to the Steelers hall of fame, but I have a feeling certain things would just be a small square on a wall between Winning the Super Bowl in 1979, and Bill Cowher gets hired in 1992, and we're going to cover some of that tonight. Yeah, absolutely. did I do a good job explaining it? You did an excellent job explaining it. So you sort of set the table a little bit in that the Steelers won the Super Bowl. They won Super Bowl 14 in 1979 with a core of players that had basically been there. They won four and six years. So that was less time than the 49ers. The 49ers won four in nine years. The green Bay Packers won five NFL titles in seven years. So that's a somewhat comparable period of time. But as far as the super bowl era, much shorter time period for the, uh, for the Steelers, which means a lot of the core was there for all four championships. And we'll list some of these guys as they retire. Um, some of the guys you get to the mid to late eighties and there's a handful of guys that are still on the team and it's almost unbelievable, but sort of before we jump in to after that era, it's kind of important with the Steelers. And I think this gets lost 
to talk about, you know, when you when they talk about the Lombardi Packers, they talk about how they had been, they were a once fr- proud franchise that had fallen on hard times in the fifties, and he took over this sort of collection of misfits. But you know, they obviously had these glory days in the thirties and early forties, and you know, even the twenties. From when the Steelers came into the league in nineteen thirty three, all the way through until nineteen seventy two. They had made the playoffs, made a playoff once. They had never made an NFL championship game. They had certainly never won an NFL championship. Their only postseason appearance was in 1947 when they played in a tiebreaker because this was still the era of East Division champion, West Division champion, uh, NFL championship game. They played the Eagles in a tiebreaker and lost at Forbes Field on December 21st, 1947 by a score of 21 to nothing. And that was the postseason experience of the Pittsburgh Steelers for the first, basically 40 years of their existence. So they had zero points, zero postseason points in basically four decades. Yes. Um, you know, they had the year where they were combined with the Eagles and then the year where they were combined with the Cardinals, but they were not a, proud franchise by any stretch of the imagination. They were almost what the Arizona Cardinals have been the last 40 years. And it was difficult for the owner, Art Rooney, because he was one of the sort of original, not a founder, but you have these big owners that are a part of the NFL and sort of ushering it through the 30s, 40s, 50s. And that's Hal- George Hallis with the Bears. That's Tim Mara with the Giants. That's George Marshall with the Redskins. And that's Rooney with the Steelers. And the other three all had significant periods of winning, significant championships in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Steelers under Art Rooney had absolutely none of that. So, you know, they, they they talk about how he was just a perennial loser for 40 years. So what I'm going to do here, because I don't want to get I want to purposely skip over as much of the 70s Steelers as we can, because that's not the focus of the episode. And there's no way you basically either have to do a lot or do a little. So I'm going to essentially do this from when Chuck Noll gets hired, and we'll talk more about Chuck Noll as this goes on, but I'm going to use him as the bookend. So in 1968, the year before Noll takes over, the Steelers go 2-11-1. As I mentioned, they hadn't played in a playoff game in 42 years, or excuse me, in 21 years, hadn't played in a championship game ever. 1969, they hire Chuck Noll after, you know who the original person they tried to get to take the job was? Might have was it Lombardi? No. Was it Matt? Think that no. Think that part of the country. Hmm. Wasn't Bud Been Grant? The, was it Bud Grant? No, you're uh, not the NFL. Not the NFL. Paul Brown. Joe Paterno. Oh, and we just funny, too, because when we talked about the Giants, something with the Giants a while back, we talked about how Paterno was about to get that job in the late 70s. So real quick, Paterno took over as the head coach of Penn State in 1966. 
He was offered the head coaching job of the Steelers. He was offered $70,000 a season. Reportedly, he was making 20 at Penn State. He was close to accepting, but he started thinking about basically what he said, you know, in this interview years later was he thought he had kind of he would be kind of screwing Penn State by leaving so quickly and that he would have really put them in the hole. So he decided to stay. So the Steelers go to Chuck Knoll, who takes over in 1969. Like I said, we'll get a little more into Chuck Knoll. He'd been a player with the uh, Cleveland Browns. He was a Cleveland kid. Um, pl- went to started to play at Notre Dame, but then or had agreed to play at Notre Dame, but then had a seizure during practice before he could ever play. And the coach at the time didn't want anything to do with him and taking that kind of risks. He then went and after college, he went and became a, an assistant coach at in the AFL with the uh, LA Chargers. And do you know who one of his, his defensive charges was on those Charger teams? This is sometime in the, what, the mid-60s? Early 60s. Jeez, I'm doing bad with the with the guessing tonight. Early 60s, one of his best. The big defenders. cat, Ernie Ladd. Oh, he would go at him tooth and nail. And and he, I have a quote here from Ernie Ladd on Chuck Noll, where he basically says like Chuck Noll was the best teacher coach that I ever had. You know, he would he would really like hammer you about the fundamentals, and sometimes he'd really get on your nerves. But he was still like he was a great, great sort of teacher of the game. So he went from there to, and I guess I am just going to get into his biography here. He he went from there to the Colts, where he was the defensive coordinator for the nineteen sixty eight. Uh, Baltimore Colts under Don Shula, and that was the you know team that went thirteen and one, went to the Super Bowl, lost to the Jets, and from there he takes the job with the Steelers. Takes over in nineteen sixty nine. They go one and thirteen. Obviously, the worst record they've ever had as a franchise. Really, the bottoming out of it, and then you just start to see steady progress. Nineteen seventy five and nine, seventy one six and eight. 72, they go 11 and three. They get to the AFC title game and they lose to the undefeated uh, Dolphins. 73, they're 10 and four. They lose in the divisional round. And then 74, 10, three and one, they win the Super Bowl. 75, 12 and two, they win the Super Bowl. 76, 10 and four, they lose in the AFC title game, which would have been to the Raiders. 77, mm-hmm. they go nine and five. They lose in the divisional round. 78, 14 and two, they win the Super Bowl. And then in 79, they go 12 and four and they win the Super Bowl with uh, over the Rams in that game. And I guess technically January of 1980, but the really the end of the 70s. And much like the Packers of the 60s and the 49ers of the 80s, they are able to truly do all of their winning in a single decade. So. The Packers truly are the team of the 60s. The 49ers truly are the team of the 80s. And the Steelers truly are the team of the 70s because once the 70s are over, the winning stops for the Steelers immediately. So in 1980, and we'll go year by year, but not necessarily game by game. And we'll talk about, you know, we'll obviously spend more time on interesting stuff. So 1980, they fall to nine and seven. They miss the playoffs. John Stallworth is hurt for almost all of the year in 1980. I just to compare sort of the drop off in 1979, they had the first ranked offense in the league in 1980. It was 10th in 1979. They had the fifth ranked defense in the league in 1980. It was 15th. Um, 
And with so the they, exception of Stallworth, with the exception of Stallworth being hurt, it's pretty much the same team. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is is there's a couple of guys who retire at the end of the eighty season, which I'll touch on in a second. Not um, it, nobody has really left yet. Certainly, a lot of those. There was no reason to think going into nineteen eighty that the season was, you know, that the Steelers were done. You know what I mean? Um, so here's the quote I wanted to find. This is from the Washington Post from August 4th of 81. So after the 80 season, but before the 81 season, it basically it's by an art, uh, article by a guy named Gary Pomerantz. And he said, uh, now the voice has drifted through the Alleghenies and settled here as though it has squatters rights. It is the same voice that long ago abused Green Bay, Miami's and uh, Miami and others. After it leaves here, it will wait, then find a new neighbor to deceive. It is a voice that says the dynasty is over. And then I'll skip the next paragraph. It's fine, but I don't want to read the whole article. And then it says, and this is especially brutal here. Last year, the Pittsburgh Steelers were nine and seven and did not make the playoffs for the first time in nine years. When the postseason came, in came Cleveland, Dallas, and Philadelphia. The Steelers went with the New York Giants, New Orleans, and the rest of them. The teams that had won the team that had won the Super Bowl for the previous six years didn't even qualify for the finals. So basically, and I mean by 1980, you would throw the Giants in there with the Saints, but uh basically saying, like, oh, the Pittsburgh Steelers didn't make the playoffs. They went, and this is kind of what we've seen with the Patriots the last couple of years, where it's like Oh, the Patriots are like out of it in December. And that was the Steelers team not, you know, did not qualify for the postseason. And they still had a winning record. But, you know, it was certainly a big thing to not make the playoffs for the first time since 1972. And as I was a defending champion. I would note that Gary Pomerantz has written quite a book about the Steelers and the book that I used quite a bit about the Steelers. And the book that I used for a lot of my prep is called Their Life's Work. The Brotherhood of the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers, then and now, I think it was written about 10, 12 years ago, and it's written by Gary Pomerantz. So he's got a long track record of writing really good stuff about those those 70s Steelers teams and their aftermath. Yeah, so that I have a little quick article on the 1980 team. Um, they had a, uh, you know, they had a chance, obviously, through the end of the season and then. I believe they lost four of three of their last four uh, to miss the playoffs. Um, by the time they played their last game of the season, they had been eliminated at the end of the season. You get your first sort of slate of retirements, Rocky Blyer, Mike Wagner, Dwight White. So again, not Rocky Blyer had obviously been a key player on the team, but you know, you still had the core of the team. Mostly the defensive core of the team was still intact. All and, those, all those guys that end up in the Hall of Fame eventually: Lambert, Ham, Blunt, Joe Green. All those guys are still around. Yeah, and and on the offensive side of the field too. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have anything to say on eighty before we went forward a little bit? No, because I think they actually kind of rebound in eighty-one, and their motto is "One for the thumb" in eighty-one, and I think they make it back to the playoffs in eighty-one, don't they? No. Oh, okay. Never mind. Um, so in in eighty-one. They finish, uh, let me get this pull up here. In 81, they finish eight and eight by what I have here. Yeah, they're still eight and eight in 1981. This is actually Tony Dungy's first year on the staff for the Steelers. They had been eight and five and they lose, um, they lose their last three games to fall to eight and eight and 
lose and miss out on the playoffs. Their last three losses, they lose to Oakland, Cincinnati, and Houston. They're all fairly close games, a three-point game, a seven-point game, and a one-point game. Um, this is also a year where uh, Terry Bradshaw starts 14 games, but Mark Malone makes starts for the Steelers for the first time in 1981 and Mark Malone for better or worse would in a lot of ways come to embody the 80 Steelers as sort of, well, we went from Terry Bradshaw to Mark Malone. What did you expect would happen? And he Malone is somebody who they drafted as a rookie in 1980. So he perfectly comes in at exactly the wrong time. He gets drafted right as the championships are ending. And that's tough, especially for a quarterback. Yeah, so at the end of the 81 season, this is where you start to see some really significant retirements. Joe Green retires. L.C. Greenwood retires. um, And this is now two years in a row. They haven't made the playoffs. This year, they finished without a winning record for the first time in about 10 years. But the AFC is still, and this is as we're going to talk about the next few years, they're kind of able to fool people for another few years into not realizing how over it is yet. because. You think about it, the Raiders are still really good. It's not the John Madden Raiders anymore, but the Raiders are good. The AFC East, especially before Marino gets there, is not, you know, no true powerhouse. You're you're in the middle of the shift from the best teams in the league or in the AFC to the best teams in the league or in the NFC. 81, San Francisco wins their first Super Bowl. The Bears very soon start to build up rapidly the Redskins have the pieces in place where they would win the Super Bowl the next year the Eagles have been you know it's starting to shift to the other conference so there's a few years we're going to talk about here where nine and seven wins two out of the three divisions in the AFC well it's shifting and if you think about it it's really shifting dramatically because 83 the Raiders beat the Redskins in the Super Bowl and then the AFC doesn't win a Super Bowl again until 1997, so almost 15 years or 14 years there. So that shift is really that's pronounced starting in about 82, 83. Yep. Um, 82 is a strike year, so it's hard to draw too much inference to any of this, but they go. This is these are the last years for Lynn Swan and Jack Ham. So two more really crucial pieces of the Raiders dynasty are gone at the end of the 82 season. They finished six and three, which gets them into the playoffs. Um, it's also a year that's famous for they, the Steelers switch to a three, four defense, which has essentially been what they've run since 1982. Um, so it's a, it's a big shift from what they ran, you know, the, they, the steel curtain defense, the, the front four that was considered probably the best front four unit in football, certainly in the Super Bowl era. Um, and now they're switching their defense and probably a lot of it has to do with the fact that Joe Green is retired, but now they're in a they're running a three, four. There's a point in the early two thousands where they're the only team in the league that runs a three, four, and now it's come a little more back into style, but through the ebbs and flows of defensive football, since this time, the Steelers have been a three, four team predominantly. And a team always known for really good linebackers. 
Yep. So again, 82 is tough to fully grasp because they only play nine games. The the game they play September 13th, September 19th, then no games until right before Thanksgiving on November 21st. I know we just recently did the episode on the um on the 82, all of 1982 in sports, and that included the 82 strike. So we won't get too much into like the reasons for any of those here, but they were two and zero when the strike came, and they managed to stay above five hundred the whole year and get in to the Super Bowl tournament. I guess it was called in nineteen eighty two as the number four seed out of eight that year, which meant they not only were in the playoffs, they actually hosted a playoff game in nineteen eighty two, which they lose very close to the San Diego Chargers. They lose 31 to 28 at Three River Stadium on January 29th, uh, or excuse me, January 9th of 1983. So the end of the 82 season. Again, hard to put too much context on this one either way, except for the fact that Lynn Swan and Jack Cam are gone at the end of the year. They make the playoffs. They, you know, finish above 500. But the most significant thing probably of the first part of this is what happens between the 1982 season and the start of the 1983 season. But real quick, let me just note that they're up by they're up 28 to 17 in this second round AFC playoff game. And, you know, they, they lose it on a late comeback by San Diego uh, hall of famer. Dan Fouts throws two late touchdown passes to his hall of fame tight end, Kellen Winslow. The winner of that game goes on to play the Miami Dolphins in the AFC Championship game, and that's the AFC Championship. That's the Dolphins team with uh, David Woodley at quarterback. He had gone back and forth between him and uh, Don Strzok, and Woodley was the starting quarterback, and that team gets just – they just get beaten to death in, in the Super Bowl against the Redskins. So had they managed to pull that game out, they very easily could have beaten Miami the following week and gone to another Super Bowl. So even though short season, five and four, losing the second round, they're a little closer to potentially being in another Super Bowl than you might think. Yeah. And, you know, that's you could also look at it the other way and say hey, that team five years earlier, are they blowing a road playoff game to or a home playoff game to San Diego at Three River Stadium? Up 10 in the fourth quarter. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot to digest about what we're going to talk about next, which is the off season of 1983. Um, not that anybody's hanging on what, you know, wondering where I'm going with this, but the top line of this is the Steelers have the Steelers who, you know, again, had made the playoffs are, picking 21st in the draft and they pass up the quarterback from Pitt, a Pittsburgh kid named Dan Marino. Dan Marino goes six picks later to the dolphins, the dolphins who had just been in the super bowl the year before with David Woodley at quarterback, who's going to come back into our story in a little while. Marino, obviously a year later throws for 48 touchdowns, goes on to a super bowl appearance, a hall of fame career, the Steelers spend almost all, well, pretty much Marino, no, Marino's entire career 
the Steelers through decent teams, good teams, and bad teams at no point have a quarterback anywhere near on the level of Dan Marino from 1983 on. No, never. <laughs> now, the reason I wanted that's worth digging into this is, and I have a good article from the nice thing about this is there are a lot, a lot of good Steeler fan blogs. <laughs> so like it got to the point where in the late eighties, when we're in looking at once for late eighties, I was Googling specific games and coming up the best one was a blog called steel curtain rising. Basically any game I went to search for the guy had written an article about, or somebody on the site had written an article this is from Steel City Insider, but I think there's a lot of confusion, and we'll get to the who the Steelers actually did draft in a couple of minutes because that's an interesting story that I really wasn't aware of in the first place uh, in its own right. There is a lot of sort of, oh, the Steelers didn't draft Dan Marino because Dan Marino had character concerns, which some of which I guess were true. I did. There might've been some issues with him at Pitt, if I'm remembering correctly, or the Steelers didn't draft uh, Dan Marino because they really liked what they had in Mark Malone. None of that is true. The real reason the Steelers didn't draft Dan Marino is because they were under the mistaken belief Bradshaw that Terry Bradshaw that Bradshaw still had a lot more good football in him. So they lose in early January of of 83. The Steelers do. They lose that playoff game. We were just talking about to the chargers. And I'm reading a, a, a piece from uh, a Steeler.com article by a guy named Bob Labriola from uh, a few, at least 10 years ago, but it was, you know, it was, it wasn't a contemporary article, but he says the reason the Steelers didn't pick Marino had little to do with Marino and more to do with what they believed in Bradshaw, or at least what they thought they had in Bradshaw before March 3rd on March 23rd of 1983, uh, a Shreveport, a UPI story, United press international ran a story from Shreveport, Louisiana that said Terry Bradshaw had undergone surgery on his throwing arm under an alias. Do you know what the alias was? This is an interesting little coincidence. You know, it's funny. I do know this, and I just saw this like a week or two ago. Totally unrelated. Thomas to Brady. For, yeah, totally unrelated to preparing for this episode. They gave him the name Thomas Brady. Mm. Apparently, it wasn't actually him that came up with this. It was something the hospital just kind of... Because if you think about it, Thomas Brady is a pretty generic name. So that mm. they just kind of threw it up there. Um, the, the hospital did this, not the not Bradshaw, but it is kind of one of those interesting sort of quirks of history that there's what three quarterbacks who have won four Super Bowls or more. And one of them went in under the name of another one who would win four Super Bowls. So Bradshaw's 35 years old. He has surgery sort of on his own in Shreveport by an orthopedist. Um, it says if Bradshaw wanted to have the surgery, if he believed the surgery was necessary, that's okay. But getting it done in Shreveport under an assumed name, instead of having the best elbow man in America do it, uh, makes no sense. And did his choice of surgeon accelerate the arrival of the end of Bradshaw's career? So Bradshaw is in his late, you know, he's in his mid thirties, but he's 35. You would think he's still got a couple of years left. He has this surgery. The Steelers, whether they liked what they had in Mark Malone or Cliff Stout or whatever, they didn't draft Dan Marino because they thought they probably had two to three years left of Terry Bradshaw at the top of his game, 
when the reality of it is that they had less than one full game left in Tom Brady in Terry Bradshaw's career. And it's funny because in a lot of ways that thinking has changed in the NFL. And I'm thinking specifically of the Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers thing, but there are other examples too. The 49ers did it with Young and Joe Montana, even though Steve Young was a trade, not a draft. But nowadays, if you are pretty sure your quarterback's got at most two or three years left, you're getting somebody who can be there when he goes out. So a little bit of a different mindset uh, now than there was in the, you know, in the early 80s. It would almost be better if they thought they had something in Mark Malone. I wasn't saying that by way of absolving the Steelers, because if you think about it, they didn't pick a quarterback because they had a 35-year-old quarterback who just had elbow surgery. Even if they thought he was going to be back at 100%, you need to draft a quarterback in that situation. And you needed to draft a quarterback in 1983, too. So... I want to go on a little bit of a digression here because I found out found a lot of information on this, um, and I didn't know the appropriate place to bring it up, but this seems like a, a good place. I knew a little bit about this, but the relationship between Bradshaw and Knoll and the relationship between Bradshaw and the city of Pittsburgh has never been a good one. I've seen Bradshaw interviewed and talked about Chuck Knoll, and he's always talked about how he didn't really like him. He was hard on him, but you know, he understood that it was what made him successful. But Bradshaw has never said a lot of warm things about Chuck Knoll. It also um, was sort of in some of the research that I did. Bradshaw, even to this day is very reluctant to go back to the city of Pittsburgh and whether it's face the fans or just be there. There's a lot of sort of, I don't know if bad blood is the right word, but there's a lot of sensitivity on Bradshaw's part and that drove so, drove home something that you and I actually talked about in person together at Christmas when we were watching the Franco Harris number retirement and that was sort of a very odd and surreal situation because Harris had just passed away about two days before they mm. were supposed to retire his number and I don't know if you remember but Bradshaw gave a little bit of an introduction you know a, a televised introduction to the broadcast but was not a part of the ceremony in Pittsburgh. And I, I, there were a number of reasons why I thought that could have been, you know, it was, it was, it was Christmas time. It was cold. Some people, you know, they, especially older people, they still have, you know, COVID illness type um, concerns about being in large groups. Plus Bradshaw is still doing TV and the, you know, it was a football weekend, obviously. And so look, it's possible that any number of those were the real reasons why Bradshaw wasn't there in person. But as I was reading in this Pomerantz book and a couple other places, one of the things that immediately struck me about Bradshaw and the city of Pittsburgh is that maybe some of his lack of attendance, even as recently as two months, two, three months ago, is related to some of these lingering bad feelings he has towards um, the way he perceived that he was treated. So it's interesting. Yeah, and it's um I mean he's always had cover the last 30 or so years that he does the Fox pregame show. So, you know, why would he have time to, you know, he wouldn't have to, He's got on any given time, he's got an excuse for why he can't be there cuz he's got to be in LA doing the Fox pregame show. But I did remember hearing a lot about that that he was sort of not necessarily estranged from the organization, but maybe half a degree above that 
for a guy in his position. Bradshaw, he, you know, when he, Bradshaw didn't go to Noel's funeral whenever that was, mm-hmm. you know, within the last 10 years or so. So you're right. He has had an excuse, but he also has not engaged very much, which is um, interesting for a guy who's still out there so much in the football world. This isn't a guy who's lived as a recluse. He's still remained very much. No, he could. It'd be nice if he was a little more reclusive, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you but, don't want to uh, win his money? No, he's just, he's everywhere. But uh, so the a couple of things with Noel, because I think it's a decent time to, to talk about him beyond just the biographical information. He He's a tough guy to pin down because he wasn't a disciplinarian in the sense of off the field. He really didn't, you know. They always contrast him with the first Super Bowl they were in against the Vikings, where Bud Grant basically wouldn't let his players leave the hotel except to go to practice. And Chuck Noll basically got down there and told them all, get the partying out of your system now early in the week, like so we can get down to business later in the week. He wasn't a... Yeah, in New Orleans. He wasn't a you know, taskmaster in that regard. What he was, was very, very detail oriented. And they would say he would go over with guys, things like their three point stance and go over it and over it and say, no, your, your right leg is not far back enough. You're not going to generate the power we need you to, or he would, you know, work with a, a linebacker and, and say, no, your hips, you're opening your hips the wrong way. And, you know, and basically just, he was a guy who was a sub when he played for the Browns, he was also a substitute teacher because the money was so bad. He was a fringe roster guy. He would also be a sub. He was also a substitute teacher. He went, I believe he studied to be a lawyer for a while and decided he couldn't do it just because of the confrontational nature of it. But he was, so it wasn't a yeller screamer or grab your face mask, you know, trim your sideburns guy. But I could see where, especially, you know, if you're a guy like Terry Bradshaw and it's 1977 and you've won a couple of Super Bowls and he's getting on you about your, you know, which way you're, you know, you're opening your shoulders to make your second read. And I I don't know that this is what it was, but you could see that where it could just be like eventually that level of sort of, you know, there may have been personalities involved, but it's not hard to imagine why a star player eventually especially Noel being a predominantly a defensive coach, why Bradshaw might've thought he was beyond that. And I also think Bradshaw held bitterness just from when he first came up and the whole thing with, uh, was it Gilliam? Yeah. Junior Gilliam, who was one of the first black starting quarterbacks in the NFL mm. and who he kind of went back and forth with at the beginning as the starter. There might've actually even been a mm. third guy involved in that whole thing. Bradshaw later said in an interview, by the way, probably in several interviews, Noel never knew how to, to handle me. So yeah, Bradshaw always kind of bitter is I think the right word. I would point out though, just looking at his stats, he actually led the league in touchdown passes in 1982. Now it was a nine game season. Mm. So it was a little different, but it's not as if there was no basis to think that he might have a little more in the tank going into 83 and beyond. And just before we jump into 83, since we're talking about Noel, there's a really good article here um, from the athletic. It's called the Steelers lost decade. The lessons of the, the 1980s could help in the future. And this is from three years ago, I guess, as they were pondering a uh, a Roethlisberger-less future, future for the Steelers. And they talk about Noel, and they 
basically they say that one of the issues he had is that early in the seventies, he was very good at identifying assistant coaches and guys that could help in that regard. And then as happens today, you lose those guys and you have to replace them. And I guess failing in that regard. And then also simply just being too loyal to some of these veteran guys. And, you know, you get that where it's like, well, this guy was really, really good for me in 1978 and he's still playing. So why wouldn't I go with him? And it's like, well, because he's 37 now instead of 31. Um, so the, you know, again, that's not a, a real revelation, but that's sort of one of the two big things they chalk it up to when assigning any blame to Noel was that, he was unable to find good replacements, lots of turnover on the staff after the seventies. And then, um, you know, just simply being too loyal. And we're going to talk about when we get to the late eighties, a major shakeup that was imposed on him. But, you know, those were sort of the two big knocks for him because he was the coach the whole time of this. That's one of the, that's one thing that's going to be unique to him compared to a lot of these wilderness years we're going to do eventually the co- guy who was the coach in the dynasty is the coach the whole time. I guess you could say Landry with the late eighties Cowboys too. And I should note that I use that athletic article as well. It's called the Steelers lost decade. Like you said, it was written by a gentleman by the name of Ed Bouchette. We should give him some credit and we will put that in the, in the show notes. So yeah, you're, I think you, that article and what you said is all dead on, on sort of the Noel Bradshaw, Steelers veterans in general dynamic in the early eighties. So getting back into sort of our chronology with 1983, because there's some interesting stuff to talk about, but since we're on the Bradshaw thing, I figured I'd just mention this. So and there's a great YouTube clip. I wish we could play, but it's the YouTube has the whole clip of this, but um, Bradshaw doesn't play until the second to last game of the season at Shea stadium against the jets. He comes on. He plays. Two play or uh, two drives. They're both touchdown drives. He throws a 10 yard pass to Calvin Sweeney for a touchdown. And he goes over to the sideline and tells, I guess, I don't know if it was Noel or a trainer, tells him I heard something pop in my elbow as I threw the ball. Um, and basically, I'm done. And that was the end of his career. The YouTube clip is great because. They show him throw the touchdown and the video that CBS broadcast has him go over and you see him explaining. And the broadcaster says something along the lines of like, looks like he's saying he felt something in his elbow. And then just on top of that, for my own enjoyment, because of being a, you know, New York sports fan, they're like, and then the the jets playing their last game here at Shea stadium, they'll be moving to giant stadium next year. And then they show a picture of the polo grounds and they're like, speaking of great former New York sports venues, can you identify this? We'll tell you after the break. I was like, so this was not only was it what I was looking for for the moment, it was like the perfect clip for me. So I just figured I would mention that. Yeah. And that is interesting that that yeah. Bradshaw's career ends on the day that the Jets and pretty much football at Shea Stadium. Probably, I don't know, maybe there was some sort of weird college game or something at some point, That, but that's one of the last football games at Shea Stadium. So a lot of things coming to an end on that uh, gray December day in Queens in late 83. So as for the actual season, they go 10 and 6. Cliff Stout is the quarterback for the other 15 games. 
it says here the Steelers actually all the Steelers fans, and this is probably a pretty good sign of why what happened in the offseason with them happened, not with the, the Steelers, but with their opponent. Uh, Steelers fans filled Memorial Stadium Stadium in Baltimore for the Steelers Colts game, and it was the Colts first sellout in six years since 1977. Um, so in that offseason, the Colts would be beating a path to Indianapolis, probably because they were only selling games out once every six years with opposing fans. Yeah, I was um, going to say another team that's on its way out of something in 1983. Yeah, so um, 83, and I'm, I'm look, so they go 10 and 6, and I have a note here that basically the weak division is prolonging this a little bit. You know, the Browns had been had a nice year in 80. Obviously the Bengals went to the Super Bowl in 81, but you know, the A, they're only in a four team division. The Oilers fell like a rock in the early eighties In 83. They were two and 14. There's a lot of years here, like in 84, which we'll talk about, they win the division at nine and seven. So the fact that in 1980, 1983 in the AFC, there was only three teams that finished with 10 or more wins and everybody else was nine and seven or worse. So the Steelers are able to get a, not only into the playoffs, but win a division just by virtue of how, you know, weak the other three teams in the division are, you know, sort of looking at familiar names, Franco Harris still rushes for a thousand yards at 33 years old. He starts in all 16 games, um, Bradshaw obviously plays in two drives. John Stallworth at 31 years old is still there on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Jack Lambert is still there. Donnie shell is still there. Mel Blunt is still there, but, uh, you know, a lot, most of the rest of the team it's, it's turned over, but there's still a few holdouts in 83. Yeah, and I, you're going to talk about 84 in a minute. 84, they're actually surprisingly good. Yeah, and they actually they had a better record in 83. So 83, they they um they get to the playoffs. They're like I said, they're the three seed, but they are beaten 10 to 7 by the Raiders in the uh divisional round um in uh in LA. I think it was a weird thing at the time where the way the seedings worked, they ended up having to play, even though they won the division, they ended up having to play the number one seed uh, in that round. So they, um, or were, they, were the Raiders a wild card in 1983? No, how, no, that was 80. You know, I'm not sure about that. I'll look that up real quick. They might've been. No, the Raiders went, the Raiders went 12 and four. Um, so wh- whatever, but the other, so the other three playoff teams were all from the AFC West. So, this wild card ended up playing in Miami. So the Steelers went to, went to LA and lost. Um, so 10 to seven, obviously not a blowout, but um, you know, they're in the divisional round. They lose their first playoff game. Um, and then we set the stage for 84, which is definitely the most significant one of these years that uh that occurs and it's really the last hurrah. You can't even really say it's the last hurrah of the steel curtain team. Because if you look John Stallworth, Mike Webster, uh, Donnie shell, 
couple of guys who started in 19, like who began their career in 1977, Gary Dunn, Robin Cole, Larry Brown, but really Donnie Shell, Mike Webster, John Stallworth, Franco Harris was gone by 84 to, uh, to the Seahawks. So really it's an entirely different team by 1984. And the Harris thing, that's a, that's a bitter exit in and of itself. They really, Chuck Knoll at one point tries to get an assistant coach to talk Franco Harris into retiring. The assistant says, no, I'm not going to do this for a guy like that. Either you or the ownership or the Roonies have to talk to Harris. Harris, I guess, kind of doesn't get the hint. He doesn't want to retire. And then he ends up going, getting traded to Seattle to have sort of one last not so great season before he finally does decide to retire. But that's a guy they were hoping to kind of ease out the door a little bit politely and it, it just doesn't work out that way. So some of these guys are, are leaving, but not, not doing so maybe in the most, um, the easiest way they're not, you know, Harris, especially he's not sort of politely retiring. He kind of, you know, won't take the hit. They end up feeling like their hands are tied. They have to trade him. Stallworth, on the other hand, is um, has a really good year in 84 wins comeback player of the year. So at least one or two of the old guys are still contributing. And they also have a big newcomer that year in Lewis Lips, who another receiver. I remember, yep. I remember from Tecmo Super Bowl, which came out in 1991. And he's one of the bigger players on the Steelers in that. Uh, in that game so he's sort of you know it's not a wasteland there's some guys that they they bring onto the team in the 80s that have good careers you know or at least several good years just not on um not on very good teams because of the era that they played in one thing i wanted to mention to close the loop which we're going a little bit backwards but in 83 i talked about the so they passed on marino the guy they did draft to was a defensive lineman named Gabriel Rivera. And to sort of what made this even worse was that Gabriel Rivera in 1983, um, he had two sacks in his first six games. And then on October, 1983, October 20th of 83, he was paralyzed in a car wreck while he was driving drunk. He crossed into another lane collided with another vehicle it says the 22 year old was treated for head neck chest and abdominal injuries as well as significant memory loss never obviously played football again he may have i don't think he had a very high quality of life after that he did hang on and, and survive until 2018 but um you know obviously on top of them passing on dan marino they drafted a guy who only played six games in his career and in himself in a car wreck while he was driving drunk. And it's funny because those type of things seem to happen to teams when things mm. are kind of going downhill. Otherwise, I, the one that immediately comes to mind is Len bias with the Celtics, but I think there are other examples that you can think of too. That tends to be a sign of a team that's either on the decline or just things aren't going so well for them in general. And sometimes it's it's as benign as a guy who has a couple of good years is who's like 
they're banking on to be the future of the franchise. And in his second year, he blows his knee out and is never the same player. You know, it's yeah. not always tragedy, but so 84 and we'll talk about, can I just play before you get to 84, I just want to loop back to the Harris thing real quick. And this is from the Pomerantz book that I referenced as part of the bitterness of the fallout between the Steelers and Harris. Somebody asks Noel a question about Harris and Har- uh, Noel says, Franco who, and apparently that sticks with Franco Harris for 30 years. So not as only, well as, should. not only as, as well, it should for a guy who made the biggest play in team history and then immaculate receptions, won four Super Bowls and a Super Bowl MVP. I think maybe that speaks to some of the stuff you were saying about Chuck Knoll's personality before. So in addition to Bradshaw being bitter, Harris is bitter for a long time, too. So the 84 team just to set the stage. So the guy who'd been the quarterback for most of 83 and really been predominantly Bradshaw's backup before that was a guy named Cliff Stout. He leaves to go to the USFL. So Bradshaw is gone. Cliff Stout is gone. Mark Malone starts nine games and David Woodley, the quarterback of previously had been the um, Dolphins quarterback in the 1982 Super Bowl. Obviously, then they drafted Marino. Marino is now on his way to going to the Super Bowl and throwing 48 touchdowns. David Woodley comes in and he starts seven games for the Steelers. Now he goes one and six in those seven games. So obviously, Malone is the one who does the majority of the successful performing in this season. But I just figured I would mention sort of the shift at quarterback there. Before we even get to the playoffs, the 1984 Steelers are. very famous or not very famous, but their claim to fame on this season is that they defeated the 49ers and they are the only team that beat the 49ers that year. The 49ers went the fit went 15 and one and won the Super Bowl and the Steelers beat them um, mid October. So the, the, the 49ers run defeated the um, Steelers go to California to play the Steelers or to play the 49ers. Uh, they were at 500 going in. Uh, Malone was the quarterback by this point, and they end up beating the 49ers in a game that the uh, 49ers have a 17 to 10 lead. The Steelers have a 15 play, 83 yard drive that ends on a um, Frank Pollard is uh is the leading offensive player on the uh, on the field for the Steelers that day. They end up with a first and goal at the six. Mark Malone hits John Stallworth, still there, still making big plays. They tie the game. Uh, Montana gets the ball back with three minutes to go. They hit a field goal to make it, excuse me, the 49ers can't do anything. Steelers get the ball back. Gary Anderson hits a field goal to give them a three-point lead and ultimately end up winning the game 20-17 to 17 for the big upset uh, on the road and the 49ers go down to 6-1. and one. And I would note that Stallworth is having maybe his best career as a pro, even though he only played in four games the year before and, well, he played in nine the year after that. But he, he'd missed a significant chunk of time in both 80 and 83. But in 84, at 32 years of age, 80 receptions... 1,395 yards and 11 touchdowns, 
all of those are career highs for the Hall of Famer John Stallworth. So while pretty much everybody else from that team is, with the exception of Mike Webster, who basically sticks around throughout the 80s, but all those other guys, offense and defense, are either gone or significantly diminished in their role. Stallworth is still playing some of the best football of his career in 1984 at, at 32 years of age. And in that game, Montana, 24 of 34 for 241 yards, but he doesn't throw a touchdown. He's intercepted once. And, you know, it's the 84-49ers, and the Steelers managed to hold him to 17 points. And like I said, they're the only team to figure the, you know, the next year, the 85 Bears in that game against the Dolphins gets tons and tons of coverage because of, you know, it being the 85 Bears and then the Dolphins with the whole undefeated thing. This was a similar thing the year before, and this game was on the road. They went out and, and beat the and maybe because it was a little earlier in the season too. The 49ers are only six and oh instead of eleven or twelve and oh. But you know, the only loss of the season for the 49ers was to the Steelers team. And it's not as poetic because it's not the Dolphins and all that stuff, too. But yeah, your yeah. your your point is a good one. Yep. So the uh Steelers get to they win the division, they end up uh going to Denver in the divisional round of the 1984 playoffs against the John Elway. You know, it's Elway's second year in the league because he was drafted in that same draft in 83. Um, And the Steelers managed to take a 10-7 lead into the half. Broncos go up 17 to 10. And then the Steelers get a touchdown from Mark Malone to Lewis Lips late in the third to tie it. And then Frank Pollard with a two-yard rush in the closing minutes of the game. And the, the Steelers get the last playoff win sort of of the um, of the Chuck Knoll era, sort of the last hurrah. Is that the last win? I think it is, right? Or did they, I know they in 89 they make the playoffs, but do they win a game in 89? Oh, you know what? They might win a game in 89. I, I could be. Yeah, I think I might be wrong about that. So, yeah, be right. They, 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 they do Houston in 89 in another yeah, close game. All right. Well, we'll get, close game. we'll get to that. I'm sorry. So it's sort of the um, so they they get this win on the road in Denver. And suddenly this Steelers team is it back in the AFC championship game. Terry Bradshaw is gone. Joe Green is gone. All these guys are gone. They're one win away from the Super Bowl and not for nothing. They would, they're the only team in the league that's beaten the 49ers. It's a good and point. And they had a chance to play them again in the Super Bowl. Now, I don't think that would have gone the same way, but they end up going to um they end up going to Miami uh in the uh AFC championship game. Dan Marino, who, like we said, was uh it was never close in the second half. They lose 45 to 28. Marino goes 21 of 34 for Four touchdowns, one interception, 421 yards. Malone plays, you know, decently on the other side with uh, 20 of 36 for, I believe, 320 something yards. But obviously, Marino in that year wins that game and goes to his first, and it turns out only Super Bowl ever. So, Steelers with a valiant um, season, sort of a what seems to be a revitalization, they win a playoff game and they go down and uh, and lose to the Dolphins in the eventual MVP of the league in the AFC championship game. 
There's an interesting anecdote that I read somewhere from that game, and I don't remember exactly where I read it, but on one play, Lambert sort of levels Dan Marino on a blitz, and Marino was still able to complete the pass, I think, to a running back. And the players on the sidelines say, well, basically, if Marino is going to be able to complete a pass, even after getting hit by that, hit that way by Jack Lambert, we know we don't have a chance in this game. And it's sort of an interesting changing of the guard moment where sort of yeah. one of the anchors of the 80s steel curtain defense hits this young superstar in Dan Marino, but isn't able to stop him. So the, the Dolphins kind yeah, of, it's, it's a changing of the guard. They were basically like, if we can't get him on that play, how are we going to get him? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. So... <sighs> This is sort of another inflection point because there's a steep drop off after this. Um, they've made the playoffs three years in a row now. They've actually, you know, they got to the AFC Championship game in 1984. Um, they beat the team that eventually won the Super Bowl. Not that that's the be all and end all, but you know, the team goes 18 and one. You're the team who beat them. That that means something. That's sort of the end of it for a while. In 1985, they go. Seven and nine, they end up losing five of their last six games. They actually, and I like I mentioned before, they only finish, I believe, a game out of first place. So they they actually were somewhat in it until the end of the season because Cleveland wins the division at eight and eight, and them in Cincinnati are both seven and nine. So you know, had they only lost four of their last six or certainly three of their last six, they may have actually been a been a playoff team that year. They might have won the division at eight and eight. Mm -hmm. um, Malone starts eight games. David Woodley starts six and someone named Scott Campbell starts two games in uh, 1985 for them. So, again, uh, maybe you know, only two games worse than they were the year before, but still only nine and or still, you know, seven and nine out of the playoffs, losing record and, you know, losing five of their last six games. And they were blown out in a few of these games. If you look at their down the stretch, they lost a game. They let up 54 points to San Diego. They lost 28 to 10 to the giants the last week of the year. And, you know, by now this is sort of the official start of, Outside of John Stallworth, there's really nobody left from from those uh, those glory day teams at this point. Webster is still there. Oh, Webster is still there. You're right. Um, I think Webster at lasts all the way to like 1990 and even goes to play in Kansas City for a year or two. I probably have that that written in here. Um, so 86 is almost the exact same situation except in reverse. So in 86, they go six and 10. So they're a game worse than they were the year before that. But in 86, they started one and six. And then after that finished five and four. So that's not finishing five and four is not, not like some insane run, but when you start one and six, it's a much bigger deal. The thing I noticed is this is the first time they finished in the bottom half in both offense and defense. So they finished 18th in offense, 20, uh, 17th in defense. So, you know, they're not bottom three or four, but they're now a bottom half of the league team in both units. So it's not like, oh, we still are holding on to some really good defensive personnel, but the offense is, uh, you know, holding us back or vice versa. They're mediocre on both sides of the ball by this point. 
Yeah, and that's when they go from being a you know a team that you have to worry about to one that's just middle of the road to to worse than that. So Mark Malone starts 14 of the games. Bubby Brister gets two starts, his first sort of pop-up on this uh on this narrative here. Um they did. It's funny because they went five and four down the stretch, and two of their losses were in back-to-back games in overtime to Cleveland and Chicago, both teams who went to conference championship games that year. Or well, no, Chicago was they were both top two seeds. Chicago lost in the second round. Um, but they lost both of those games in overtime on the road to good teams. They also lost to Buffalo by just four points. And they lost to Kansas City by just five points. So they were pretty close in almost every game they played down the stretch. But this is still a mediocre team that, um, you know, really is is they're the Tampa Bay Bucks. Well, they're better than the Bucks, but they're, you know, they're just sort of they're the Lions. They're a run of the mill bad team by this point. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to get there's going to be some. The last couple of years, not much interesting to say. Some interesting stuff starts to happen in 1987. First of all, Mike Webster's still there. They go eight and seven. It's another strike year. They miss the playoffs barely. But this is also the year they draft Rod Woodson, Hardy Nickerson, and Greg Lloyd. So three guys who would be big parts of those 90s teams that finally start to get good. And you said Webster's still there, but so is Stallworth. Stallworth so is, is still there. So is Donnie Shell, who just, I think Johnny Shell's another defensive back. Who I think he's getting on the Hall of Fame in the last couple of years, Donnie Shell, but he's a Hall of Fame defensive back. You don't think about Rod Woodson, who you know ended up playing with Ray Lewis on the Ravens championship team 12, 13 years later. And Donnie Shell, who's, you know, a steel curtain guy, you don't think of those guys sharing the same defensive backfield, but 1987, they did. And that's another sort of those interesting kind of, you know, if you want to call it a passing of the torch moment or just kind of an interesting coincidence. But that was interesting to me also. The most interesting thing about 87 to me, though, is uh, and by the way, Mike, Mike Malone mostly is the starting quarterback of this year. Mark Malone, you know who else is on this team in 1987? I do not. Steve Bono. Oh, I did see that. Yeah. Who ends up being Joe Montana and Steve Young's backup in San Francisco. And then, and then Montana's backup in Montana's City. in Kansas City. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think he played a few games when Young was hurt, but Montana was still on the team. It was, it was great, but just an interesting name there. Um, the most interesting thing. So you got to remember though, by now it's 1987. It's, you know, Chuck Knoll is still the guy. You know, it's it's been almost 10 years since they won a Super Bowl at this point. They've been mediocre. Now they've been bad. The league is, there's different characters coming into the league. Obviously, guys like Parcells are sort of the personalities from a coaching standpoint. Parcells, Ditka, Joe Gibbs was not that kind of guy, but he's certainly a, one of the more prolific coaches. Then you have Marty Schottenheimer, but then you have a coach in Houston, Jerry Glanville, who I knew Jerry Glanville as the CBS C team announcer. Kind of always sounded like a yokel to me on TV. Um, I guess I remember him when he was like the Falcons coach or something like that. Mm-hmm. But in 1987, he's 
coaching what's considered to be a, an Oilers team that's back on the resurgence. And they had gotten a lot of publicity for being borderline dirty or not even borderline dirty. Um, and Jerry Glanville was in the second season as the coach. He had sort of embraced a role as like, well, we're going to be the black hats and criticizing the NFL and, you know, not caring if he got fined that kind of thing. And he had before the Steelers game against the Oilers late in the season in Houston, Glanville referred to referred to the Astrodome as the house of pain and made references that Steeler players might not make it out alive. And given his reputation for encouraging not just hard hits, but for his players to take cheap shots and attempt to injure players, which I think he only did the barest minimum to try and deny that. Noel said during the game, he had told an Oiler player to tell Noel to meet him or to tell Glanville to meet him after the game because there were going to be problems. And then after the game in the handshake, Noel said, and this is picked up by microphone, but it's got the old like 70s, 80s bleep where it's like, like where you, you can't hear half. You know what I'm talking about? Where you I know can't exactly hear like what half, you're talking about. Half of what they're saying because of how much they're bleeping it out. He basically tells them like, watch your mouth with that kind of like, won't get out alive stuff. Like that'll come back to bite your ass in this league. And I'm, I'm trying to pull up the exact quote, but that basically he grabbed him and told him, knock it off with that. Cause that that'll, give you some comeback. He said, that'll come back to haunt you. I'm serious. So Noel, who at this point has been a coach for darn near 20 years, a head coach won four Super Bowls, has to know he's in the twilight of his team. And, but, you know, here's a guy coming in and he's not to his mind, respecting the game and playing it the right way. And he makes his point known and he had to know there was going to be cameras there and that it was going to be picked up and that there was going to be coverage of it, but he wanted to make his point known. And he, you know, he got in Jerry Glanville's face about it. And Glanville was a clown. Uh, Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he was a guy who was very clearly there to make headlines. And um, so there's like a Rex Ryan type with the exact opposite body type. So Noel had told uh, a guy on the Steelers or a guy in the Oilers, he said, number 24, tell your coach I'm going to meet him after the game and kick his butt. Noel said to Steelers cornerback Steve Brown, who do you think is going to win? My money is on you, Coach Brown said. And then what Noel said to Glanville was, listen, your guy's coming over here jumping people. It's going to get you in serious trouble. I'm serious. So there'd been a fight during the game, but, uh, you know, obviously – you don't think of a guy like Chuck Knoll interacting. And I'll be honest, I had never heard that story. I don't know how familiar you were with that story. I didn't know any of that. I had never heard that story either. And that's what I mean. And that's kind of the stuff you unearth with this digging into these like overlooked periods. When I looked at that, I was like, see, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I felt validated about doing an episode <laughs> on this. Yeah, he sort of played that kind of elder statesman role. Sort of, you know, it's funny because... You think about in football, at least, and it probably applies in other sports, too. But you think about in football, at least like, you know, Lombardi coached those Packer teams and then he was gone and he, you know, passed away after a year in Washington. Bill Walsh 
left the 49ers in 1988, never coached again in the NFL. He went back to college a little bit and coached a little bit in college. Meanwhile, you have the the two biggest coaches of the 70s, the two big 70s powerhouses, the two one dynasty and one sort of quasi dynasty, Chuck Knoll with Pittsburgh and Tom Landry with the Cowboys and both coach all throughout the 80s in this sort of elder statesman, not really winning, but still sort of a part of the league role. So that that that's an interesting for both of them kind of hanging around in a way that other dynasty coaches don't really do in any sport, really. So in 1988, can uh, I just break in here real quick? You're talking about Steve Bono. And I just think this is interesting because as you were talking there, I just looked at his stats a little more. You talk about a guy with an interesting career. He starts in Minnesota. Then he's got a couple years year in Pittsburgh, like you said, with Noel and still with some of these guys like John Stallworth, who, are still in the league after all those years. Then he goes to San Francisco for four years, five years. And it's part of the, the tail end of those Montana young quarterback controversy years, uh, wins a super bowl with them in 89. Then he goes to Kansas city, backs up Montana for a couple of years. Then when Montana retires, he starts with Kansas city again in 95. He's the starter starts all 16 games, makes the pro bowl goes 13 and three, 96, he's still with Kansas City. 97, he's in Green Bay as Brett Favre's backup on a team that wins the soup, makes it to the Super Bowl in 97, loses to Denver. And then in 98, he's in St. Louis with the Rams. Dick Vermeil's first year, and he's the he's the backup to Tony Banks with the Rams. And Kurt Warner is the third stringer. So think about all of these. <laughs> great NFL all-time NFL teams that he's a part of for just a year or two. <laughs> yeah. The different coaches and quarterbacks and things he's been involved in. Yeah. Favre, Montana, Young, Warner, Vermeil, Knoll, Walsh, Seifert. It's really Holmgren. It's crazy. Who was the Steelers? Who was those Chiefs coaches? That Schottenheimer? Schottenheimer. Another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 88, they fall even further. They go 5-11. and 11. It's the worst record they've had since 1969 when they went 1-13. I think really telling the defense is last in the league in points allowed. They allow 26.3 points per game. So they're, they're uh, you know, it's, they've fallen now in 10 years or nine years from the steel curtain to the worst defense in the league from a points standpoint. What is significant is that in 1988, these are the first sustained, you know, serious calls from people for Chuck Knoll to be fired. You know, he was obviously getting by for a while on reputation and the team had been decent. This is now three years out of the playoffs. They've lost their five and 11 now. Um, there's really nothing redeeming about the team as late as 1988. They had lost to Cincinnati 42 to seven. Nolan intended to resign and he told defensive line coach Joe Green, who informed Dan Rooney, who was also at the time considering firing Noel. And in case what anybody's they did wondering, the- this is the same Joe Green. This is mean Joe Green. Yes, yes, this is this is that Joe Green. They 
meet and agree to basically Noel will remain on. He also gets a position as a consultant or some sort of advisor for the rest of his life, which was a position he held despite really never doing anything, you know, certainly not in the last 20 years of his life. But what he agrees to is that basically Rooney wants him to eliminate several assistant coaches and he wants Tony Dungy, who'd been the defensive coordinator, to be demoted back to secondary coach. Dungy, who's been the who's been the defensive coordinator for several years, decides screw that. He leaves. He goes to Kansas City as the secondary coach instead. And do you know as sort of the irony of all ironies in this do you know who the defensive coordinator in kansas city is at the time don't dungy leaves defensive coordinator he goes he's going to be demoted to secondary coach so instead he goes to kansas city as the secondary coach working under their defensive coordinator who bill cower oh (laughs) jeez who we'll talk about in a little while. So this is sort of the first time of there's a power struggle. It's weird because Rooney's thinking about firing Noel. Noel's thinking about resigning and somehow they make an agreement where Noel remains the coach and six other guys lose their jobs. Yeah. What that says to me is, and this is, you know, we're very familiar in New York with Wellington Mara's, Sort of very, and this does in no way compares because it's half the amount of time from 1963 to 1978. Generously, um, the Maras, Wellington Maras specifically, would not adapt to the time, but was unwilling to pull the trigger on things. By 1988, Dan Rooney had to know he had seen all he was going to see from Chuck Knoll. And that it probably was time for Chuck Knoll to leave, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. He, you know what I mean? Like he was thinking about firing him. He meets with him. He says, you have to fire most of your assistants, but you can stay. That shows to me an owner who is afraid to make the tough decision at that point. And I know he's been a great owner, the whole franchise ownership, but in that instance, that's kind of hard to justify at that point, isn't it? It is. And it's also of a theme because Noel came to the Steelers in 69 and we're now going into the 2023 season. That's what, 54 years, I want to say, 54, 55 mm-hmm. seasons. And they've had three coaches. Cower sort of left on top. Did Cower retire right after they won the Super Bowl in 06? I don't remember. He, so they won the Super Bowl at the end of the 05 season. Okay. He, he coached them in 06 and they... I think they went like nine and seven. They they were okay, but they didn't even make the playoffs. They might have actually even gone ten and six. I think they played their last game of the year, and it was me. Whatever he left, Tomlin came in 07, and Tomlin won the Super Bowl in his second year. So, and Tomlin is still there to this day, and it's a question of, you know, if and when he'll leave. So, it's it, it's 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 of a it's of a piece with what goes on with the Steelers with coaches, especially coaches that have won for them. Yeah. And all their coaches. So are 80, for them. 89 is an interesting year. And it's with me just saying they had to know it was time for Chuck Knoll to move on. 1989, Chuck Knoll was actually the 
named the coach of the year. The they draft uh by the this is um Mike Webster is gone and he's the last guy from the Super Bowl era on the team. So it's totally been a a changeover now. They drafted Carnell Lake, who was also a, a key player on some of those 90s teams. The defense is still middle of the pack, but they jump from 28th up to 15, which is a big difference. And again, when you talk about, I talked about some of those guys who were drafted in the 80s, guys like Rod Woodson and Greg Lloyd, they, Hardy Nickerson, they've now had two to three years under their belt. So, you know, they're still young and their best days are ahead of them but they're steadily improving and becoming the backbone of a big defense. And I forgot to mention in 88, they drafted Dermontson, who would be the center for them for quite a while. So they basically went from Mike Webster to Dermonte Dawson. Hall um, of Famer, six-time All-Pro at center for the Steelers. In 89, Brister's primarily the starting quarterback. He starts 14 games. Todd Blackledge starts two of them. Um, they start out 0-2, and they got destroyed in their first two games by Cleveland and Cincinnati, divisional rivals. They lost 51 to nothing, and then 41-10. to And I guess the quote, I don't know if it was Noel or somebody else, basically said like, well, unless those are the two best teams in football, we're really in trouble. Yeah, and, he, comes um, up, he, he says, I hope we just played the two best teams in the NFL. Yep. Now they luckily for them after that, they write the ship. They get themselves up to a four, five, they're four and four, but then they lose two in a row. They're four and six. And then they manage to reel off four victories out of their last five games to get themselves to nine and seven, which is actually only good for third. It's very weird because they finished third. Here's the AFC Central in 1989. Cleveland is nine, six, and one. Houston is nine and seven. Pittsburgh is nine and seven. And Cincinnati is eight and eight. They all finish within a game and a half of each other. For yeah, and the last place that, team is Cincinnati, year, and they'd just been in the Super Bowl the year before. In 89, by the way, nine, six, and one, second best record in the NFC or in the AFC. Denver went 11 and five. They're the only team better than nine, six, and one. In 1989, there's a lot um, of mediocrity in the AFC in the late 80s. Meanwhile, seven teams won 10 or more games in the NFC. Washington did not make the playoffs at 10 and six, nor did Green Bay. Um, but um, so 89, they make the playoffs. They have a first round, a playoff game against uh, the Oilers. So again, this is. Jerry Glanville from two years ago, the uh, the villain of that, where they, um, you know, they no less to admonish Glanville as they're walking off the field. And now here they are playing in the playoffs and the Steelers come back on the Oilers and get Jerry Glanville fired. And Glanville ends up going to Atlanta, which is a whole other story. Yeah, so they um, was actually New Year's Eve day uh, in Houston. The Steelers were down. I guess they were actually up early in the game, but the Oilers had taken a six. Excuse me, the Steelers had a sixteen to nine lead early in the fourth quarter. Oilers scored two straight touchdowns. Uh, Moon to Ernest Givens, both touchdowns. Steelers had a long drive to tie it up at twenty three to twenty three on a Merrill Hodge two yard rush, and then in overtime, Gary Anderson hits a fifty yard field goal. Gary Anderson. In a dome, and I guess Noel's quote was, thank God we were in a dome. 
So they win the uh, the game in in uh, Houston. This also, by the way, is the first of several bad playoff losses for that Houston team. It's just a couple of years later when they lose to uh, they have that bad loss to Buffalo, but I believe they also lost a couple other games that maybe they weren't collapses, but they should have won. I feel like I remember the Oilers having a reputation as playoff choke artists when I was a kid. Well, and if you think about it, they, uh, yeah, that's, they, like I said, they lose that bet. Like you said, they lose that comeback to Buffalo in 92, which is one of the biggest comebacks in NFL history. And then in 1989, or excuse me, in the next round, in the divisional round, they go to Mile High Stadium. They play the Broncos, who are the number one seed, and they lose 24 to 23 by just one point. Uh, there's a drop on a drive in the fourth quarter that wouldn't have gotten them necessarily into field goal range, but would have put them at, I believe, their own 40 with still a decent amount of time left where they might have had a chance to to get into field goal range and potentially win the game. Uh, and the thing I hadn't thought about until I read this article that would have given them that would have made a Steelers Browns AFC championship game. That that big rivalry where they've never been good at the same time, really. Mm-hmm. That would have resulted in a Steelers Browns. Now, whoever won that game would probably have been in for a worse beating than what Denver got in the Super Bowl. But you know, would have been in a, certainly an interesting thing. But you know, sort of the last, the real last hurrah, they have the big comeback and then they are within a point of Denver and you know who knows if that pass hadn't been dropped late in the game if maybe sort of possibly things would have been a little different well and just to take this sort of uh counterfactual one more step the the Browns could not get past Denver in an AFC championship game they lost three of them to them in four years they probably would have had a better chance against a mediocre Pittsburgh team maybe they beat Pittsburgh and actually make a Super Bowl. They're one of what two, three teams that's never made a Super Bowl. So there's there's another interesting counterfactual just to take it another step. And then you really want to go crazy. Was Schottenheimer still the coach in 89? Of the Browns, yeah. Yeah. They make a Super Bowl. Schottenheimer may not get fired the next year. You wouldn't and think so. And then maybe Bill Belichick doesn't become the coach of the Browns, and who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> Good point. Good point. But um, so we'll, we'll we'll start to circle for a landing here. 1990, you're nine and seven, so the same record as they had in '89. They missed the playoffs. Their defense is now up to third in the league. And actually, though, let me correct myself. Schottenheimer was gone after '88. He was in Kansas City by '89. So I don't know who. The I don't know who the coach was of the Browns in 89, but it wasn't Schottenheimer. It was Bud Carson. I've heard of him, but I will admit to not knowing much about him. Yeah, he. uh, He had not been a head coach. He was a perennial. He was actually a Steelers coordinator during the early steel curtain teams. Then he was the Rams defensive coordinator. He was the Chiefs. He was with the Jets in the late 80s. And then he had a two year stint with Cleveland and then he went to become, I guess he would have become whoever the Eagles coach was in 91 to 94. I don't think that was buddy. No, Ryan. it was co uh, by then. He was co defensive coordinator, I guess after that. So he was only an NFL head coach for those two years. But um, so nine and seven, they 
1990, they go to nine and seven. They do miss the playoffs with that record. They actually, there was a three-way sort of tie going into week 17 where had they had they won, they would have won the division actually, actually because of the, the head-to-head situation. Uh, instead, they lose. They don't make the playoffs. The um, Bengals clinch the division. Houston gets in as a wild card. That's who the, the Steelers had lost to on the last um, day of the season was Houston. So Houston gets in and into the playoffs. Cincinnati wins the division. But if Pittsburgh had won, they would have won the division and obviously been the number three seed in the playoffs in 1990. One of the things that I want to point about the 90s was that going into the 1990 season, uh, did you see this story about this guy, Denny Crean or Crehan? Yeah, I wanted to mention that. Yeah. And, the, and that kind of also underscores Chuck Noel sort of not being as on the ball as maybe he should have been at that point. And this would never happen today, probably with the Internet. But they hire this guy, Denny Crehan, who's a Pittsburgh native and had most recently been an assistant at the University of California. They hire him to be the new linebackers coach going into the 1990 season. But they hear from people at San Francisco state and they say, well, hold on a second. We hired this guy to be our head coach six weeks ago. So he can't be the linebackers coach in Pittsburgh. If he's going to be the head coach at San Francisco state and uh, the PR director of the Steelers um, uh, who had worked with Noel in the seventies and eighties is a guy by the name of, Joe Gordon. And he says, I think that was a great example of what had happened as far as Chuck's preparation and awareness of what was going on. So Noel is sort of not, not what he once was as far as attention to detail and coaching and management ability as the, as the 1990s dawn. And then sort of the, uh, the end of it, 1991 Chuck Noel's last year as the coach, they go seven and nine. Neil O'Donnell, uh, who had been drafted the year before, becomes uh, the backup quarterback. Sees a little bit of action. Um, they lo- They were three and two. They lost four in a row to get down to three and six. That was really the um, the end of it. Neil O'Donnell started the last. Uh, started the middle. He started from the seventh game of the season to the fourteenth game of the season, and then I guess Brister came back in and started the last two games, but. Um, end of the year and finally Chuck Knoll has run out of of tricks run out of rope whatever you want to say he resigns obviously that was a a sort of mutual agreement for him to leave while they still uh you know so they didn't have to fire him but I'm sure if he had refused to resign at that point that he would have been let go in 1991 I think that's likely the case. Absolutely. So even after all that, the the bad years in the eighties, he still finished with a 209, 156 and one regular season record. There's going to be that's regular season and postseason, and obviously four super bowls. Um, And then 1992, you know, shortly after Chuck Knoll is, is let go. uh, Bill Cower is hired from Kansas city. In 1992, the Steelers go up to 11 and five. They're in first place in the AFC Central, and by 1995, they 
are back in the Super Bowl, although losing it to the Cowboys. And then throughout the 90s, they're a perennial playoff team. It's a different story, but they lose a lot of home AFC championship games. They shouldn't, but they're out of the wilderness by 1992 and certainly by 1994 and 1995. Cordell Stewart, Greg Lloyd, Rod Woodson, uh, Jerome Bettis after a few years. Um, you know, the the sort of the core of of Neil O'Donnell had a few really good years for them or good enough years. And they're, you know, they're into the the Steelers of the 90s, which obviously ultimately gave way to the Ben Roethlisberger Steelers that went to three Super Bowls, winning two of them. Howard makes the playoffs in each of his first six years, makes a Super Bowl, comes close to making a couple others. I'm just looking here in 97. They, I don't remember this game. They lost 21 to 24 to Denver in the 90, um, in the 90, uh, the 97 AFC championship game. And so I, I didn't realize this either. Apparently, and you may know this, Cower brought in Ron Earhart to be his offensive coordinator in the 90s. The guy had been the offensive coordinator on the Giants Super Bowl championship teams. I, I hadn't realized that, had you? I did know that, but I think I forgot it, to be honest. Yeah, Earhart is with them. He he was not there under Noel, but he comes over in 92. His last year with the Giants is 90, and then I guess he's retired or out of football for a year, and then he's there 92, 93, 94, and 95, the first four years in Pittsburgh with Cower. Uh, and his last year is their Super Bowl year. Then he spends one year in 96 with the Jets. Um, and then I get, interestingly enough, he ends up leaving the Jets when Parcells comes in. So Parcells, I guess, didn't want to keep him around in 97 when Parcells took over the Jets. The other I thing I was the quarterback coach. No, it says it was the quarterback coach in 97 and 98 for the Jets. Oh, really? Oh, maybe this maybe this only lists I'm on football reference. This might only list his coordinator positions. So never mind, because it says in 90, it says in 91, he was an assistant for the Giants. I don't know if that was, you know, because obviously Hanley, maybe maybe they didn't have an offensive coordinator that year. Oh, okay. so I apologize. I, I think for whatever reason, pro football reference only lists a guy's coordinator positions Mm -hmm. under his coaching history, not his um not his other position. So you're right. He's he's with the Jets through 98, the year they uh, they 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 lose in the AFC Championship game to Denver. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say about Noel and obviously you know age and the age of his age and the age of his players in the 80s and not being able to let go some of, to some of these guys probably plays a role. I, I read some somewhere else where they said that maybe he wasn't fully able to adjust to the game on the field. After 1978 and 1978 is a couple of big rule changes. That's when they um, put in the uh, illegal contact rule where defensive backs can't hit receivers all the way down the field before the pass is thrown. And it's also when linemen are able to extend their arms to block two major rule changes both heavily weighted towards the offense. And again, and I can't remember exactly where I read this, but the person who said it basically said that Noel maybe didn't realize that the game after 1978 was so much about offense and in particularly so much about the passing offense that maybe he struggled to adjust to that beyond all the other issues they were having. Yeah. And I think it's not any one thing. And I think this was a a really interesting one to start with because I didn't want it to, I more wanted to just kind of talk about these years and some of the players and stuff as opposed to like 
diagnosing what went wrong with the the why did the 70s Steelers dynasty end? The 70s Steelers dynasty ended because all of their players were in their mid 30s and gradually retired. That's why the 70s Steelers dynasty ended. The question of well, could it have been better? You know, what could they have done differently? Yeah, they could have drafted Dan Marino. They could have, you know, certainly anything. The stuff you mentioned with Noel was a factor. So I, I wasn't intending for this to be an autopsy on like, how did it end? Because it, you know, most the 70 Steelers ran their course. There was never, they didn't leave anything on the table. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, ah, they should have done. You could look at certain teams and say, ah, they should have done more. You know, we're dealing with today. Aaron Rodgers has basically announced that he no longer wants to play with the Packers. You could certainly write a story about or do a podcast episode about Aaron Rodgers Packers and how they really should have won more than one Super Bowl or at least gotten to more than one Super Bowl. That's not the case with the Steelers of the 70s. They could have done, you know, they could have done some things differently in the 80s. But I don't know that any of it, short of maybe if they drafted Marino, things might have been a little bit different. But Dan Marino didn't win any championships with the Dolphins either. It's more just an interesting thing of all the highlight videos, all the books and the you know documentaries. And then they beat the Rams. And now here's a highlight of 20 years later when they had mm-hmm. some reunion. Well, what happened in the middle? How did it go from Terry Bradshaw to... Mark Malone to Bobby Brister. How did it go? You know, and you start to see also the germs of that 90s team that was good. So I didn't know about the Chuck Noll, Jerry Glanville thing. I didn't know about Terry Branch or exactly what happened with his elbow in 1983. I think it's a very interesting thing to dive into of sort of how does a dynasty end and then what happens after it ends? Because they still exist. Some of those guys are still there. And when does it hit rock bottom and turn around and get good again? And in in this case, it's with the firing or the whatever you want to call it of Noel and then Cower taking over and the team starting to really win again. So and chances are, if you didn't know this, a lot of this stuff and I didn't know a lot of this stuff, the listeners didn't know a lot of it as well. So that's why it was a good topic. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed the prep for this and I really enjoyed the. the episode as well because it's um it's not a subject that's been done to death so at least not that i'm aware of no i agree and uh and that and since it wasn't done to death that's why we went slightly over 15 minutes (laughs) exactly all right well thank you for listening and i hope you all enjoyed this we'll do another one of these before too long did you have anything else to add before we signed off for tonight no i think we've uh i think we've covered about as much of it as we need to for the night All right. Well, then, until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. 
with his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.